Welcome to 2021, when your beard can be all it can be. How? By visiting the Fable Beard Company websites. As you know, they're the official beard company of the American History Podcast. And as this episode airs, it is now 2021. So, new year, new you. Get it started right by using one of their many amazing beard products to help soften your beard and hydrate it so it's the best beard you can possibly have. Now, when it comes to beard products, I'm a huge fan of beard oils and butters that are infused with CBD. I've used their roaster-scented CBD oil, which is fantastic, as is their latest one, the Baker. This particular oil is complete with a fantastic scent profile and the quality that only Fable Beard Company can deliver. Each bottle contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum CBD oil. Oh, and that scent profile? It's fresh-baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and just a hint of cinnamon spice. Believe me, gentlemen, the wife or the girlfriend is going to love it. Head over to FableBeardCompany.com and use the coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. If CBD isn't your thing, then head over to FableBeardCo.com and check out all of their oils and butters, as well as beard conditioners and even products for women that don't have CBD in them. The coupon code works over there as well. Remember, it's SEAN15, the number 15, and let's start off the new year right. Now, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 25, Harding and the Depression of 1920. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, welcome back. I hope um, y'all are having a fantastic start to your year, assuming, of course, that you're listening in early 2021 when I'm recording this. After the year we all had last year, I hope the answer to that question is definitely yes. As always, if you have any questions or comments, head over to the um, to your email app and shoot me a message. The email address is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also follow the show's social media sites. Um, we're on Twitter, at American HisCast, Facebook, and even Instagram. You can also join our mailing list. Just head over to the website and sign up. And while you're over there, check out the sources used to create the season. Finally, if um, you would like to support the show, go over to www.patreon.com slash American History. For only $5 a month, you're going to get access to a ton of history goodness, including something like, I don't know, 10 hours of bonus material. That includes the bonus show, available only on Patreon, titled 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended. And if you decide to join for more, I think it's more, I forget how much it is, maybe $30, um, you're going to get longevity bonuses as well. So we're going to send you some gifts with the show logo on it. So go check it out and see what you like. All right. So this week, the song of the week is California Here I Come by Al Jolson. I'll see you in a few. Winds start blowing and the snow is starting in a fall. Then my eyes turn westward, knowing that's the place that I love best of all. California, I've been blue since I've been away from you. I can't wait till I get going. Even now, I'm starting in a call. California, here I come, right back where 
I started from Where bowers of flowers bloom in the spring Each morning that dawning birdies sing And everything a sun-kissed miss said Don't be late That's why I can hardly wait Open up that golden gate California, here I come All right, the first thing that I want to address is the Depression of 1920. This is going to be important to our story going forward. Never heard of the Depression of 1920? <laughs> I'm not surprised if you haven't. I would actually be very surprised if you had. Why? Well, it's not the sort of story that you would hear from the proponents of big government intervention. Um, why? Because as you'll see, it goes against the conventional narrative. So, before we go on, let me tell you what the usual narrative is, or remind you of what the usual narrative is. In the absence of government counter-cyclical policy, be that via fiscal policy or monetary policy, or maybe even both, there will be no economic recovery. Or, if there is a recovery, it will take too long to make any difference to those hurt by the downturn. However, the exact opposite policies were followed in 1920 through 21, and believe it or not, the economy rebounded in almost record time. Now, I'm sure you might be wondering, just how bad was the downturn? I mean, maybe it wasn't all that bad, thus government intervention wasn't needed. Well, in 1920, the situation was indeed grim. Unemployment had jumped from about 4% to 12%, and gross national product, GNP, had dropped 17%. Now that's a significant downturn. Indeed, Secretary of Commerce, um, a man you will become familiar with, Herbert Hoover, um, a man who's also falsely accused of being a supporter of laissez-faire economics, urged President Harding to consider an array of interventions to turn the economy around. Now, as you will see, the last thing Hoover believed in was the free market. As it happens, in this instance, Hoover was ignored. Now, indeed, the new president, Warren G. Harding, cut the government's budget by nearly 50% between the end of 1920 and 1922. Tax rates were slashed for all income groups, and the national debt was actually reduced by one-third. Further, the Federal Reserve System stayed on the sidelines, so to speak. They did not attempt to use their powers to print money to fight the Depression. If you don't believe me on this, then I'd encourage you to read economic historian Kenneth Weyer, uh, America's Search for Economic Stability, Monetary and Fiscal Policy Since 1913. Anyway, by the middle of 1921, there were signs of an economic recovery. By 1922, unemployment was cut in half, and by 1923, it was down to 2.4%. Now, by way of comparison, we can check out Benjamin Anderson's Economics and the Public Welfare, a Financial and Economic History of the United States, 1914 to 1946. Published in 1949, Anderson compares the policy of the United States at this point to that of Japan. He notes the banks, industry, and government all came together and destroyed the freedom of the market. They arrested uh, the drop in prices of commodities and they interfered with the price system, holding Japanese price levels high above that of the rest of the world for the next seven years. The result was chronic industrial stagnation and a banking crisis that, by 1927, was so severe many branch banks were closed and industry was decimated. Quote, it was a stupid policy. In the effort to avert losses on inventory, representing one year's production, Japan lost seven years, end quote. Keep all of this in mind. Now, in the end, the federal government did not do what Keynesian economists always urge it to do, and that is to run unbalanced budgets and, quote, prime the pump, end quote. 
via increased spending. Instead, taxes were cut for everyone and spending was reduced. And this would be the theme of both Harding and Calvin Coolidge's presidencies. As a matter of fact, here's Warren G. Harding speaking at the Republican National Convention in 1920. Quote, We will attempt intelligent and courageous deflation and strike at government borrowing, which enlarges the evil. And we will attack high cost of government with every energy and facility which attend Republican capacity. We promise that relief which will attend the halting of waste and extravagance and the renewal of the practice of public economy, not alone because it will relieve tax burdens, but because it will be an example to stimulate thrift and economy in private life. Let us call to all the people for thrift and economy, for denial and sacrifice if need be, for a nationwide drive against extravagance and luxury, to a recommittal to simplicity of living, to that prudent and normal plan of life which is the health of the Republic. There hasn't been a recovery from the waste and abnormalities of war since the story of mankind was first written, except through work and saving, through industry and denial, while needless spending and heedless extravagance have marked every decay in the history of nations. End quote. Note, this is the opposite of what so-called experts always call for today. Inflation and increased spending by the government is the usual prescription offered by the modern economists who advise politicians. The inflationary environment we live in, however, discourages savings. Why put your money on savings and earn, what, 1% per year if you're lucky? With inflation averaging at least 4%, you lose money doing that. Thus, the average American family today has barely enough money to live paycheck to paycheck. So let's get on with the election of 1920. The Republicans nominated Warren G. Harding of Ohio and Calvin Coolidge as his vice presidential running mate. Their platform was effectively ambiguous regarding whether or not they supported the idea of joining the League of Nations. Harding himself spoke of returning America to normalcy, an apparent appeal to those wishing to see the United States remove itself from involvement in international issues. Now, as I've said before, many Americans were less interested in international issues and were tired of idealism, sacrifice, and the overreaching reforms of the progressive era. The GOP was now dominated by the so-called old guard wing of uh, after Roosevelt's progressive followers had left the party in 1912 and lost much influence in the party once they did return in 1916. The Democrats, on the other hand, nominated James M. Cox of Ohio, who supported the idea of America joining the League of Nations. Never heard of Mr. Cox? <laughs> That's because he lost, and he lost big time. Harding earned over 60% of the popular vote, while Cox came in with a miserable 34%. The electoral vote was 404 to 127, so not the worst landslide in history as far as the Electoral College is concerned. Just a side note, his running mate was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt. A couple of interesting facts about this election. First, women voted for the first time in a national election. Secondly, Eugene Debs received about 6% of the vote for the Socialist Party while he was in jail. Believe it or not, he was pardoned several months later by the new president, Warren Harding. Finally, those wishing to see the United States pursue a humbler foreign policy, one that can be best summed up by Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural speech, where he advised the U.S. should avoid becoming involved in entangling alliances, they would be quite happy with Harding. This was, for the most part, the blueprint of American foreign policy for the better part of its first century, and many of those opposed to the Democrats were determined to end America's overseas imperial adventures. In the end, I believe the American people overwhelmingly voted for the Harding-Coolidge ticket, because it was the anti-Wilson choice. Unlike his predecessor, he didn't have this grand plan to save the world. He had no desire to strengthen the office of the president. 
One senator said that Harding would simply do his best to return government to, quote, the old and accepted constitutional ways, end quote. Now let's look at the Harding administration. Some of the significant members were Charles Evans Hughes, Secretary of State. He led several important international peace conferences. And the fact that the United States took part in these peace conferences shows those who claim it was engaged in isolationism are either purposely obfuscating the truth or they're historically illiterate. Isolation is the furthest thing from what the United States was engaged in during this time period. A second important member was Andrew W. Mellon. He would serve as Secretary of the Treasury. He worked to lower the national debt and taxes, and the highest tax bracket was 77%. I question whether anyone ever really paid 77% on their income. Why? Well, let me ask, if you were wealthy, say you're in the top 1%, would you pay those taxes? Or would you instead lobby Congress to install loopholes and hire tax attorneys to make sure you paid as little as possible? Having said that, they wanted to cut taxes, especially since World War I was over by this point which that was the excuse for raising them in the first place. Further, if you wonder, don't lower taxes uh, mean less tax revenue for the government? The answer is, believe it or not, no. We saw in the 1980s that although taxes were slashed, the government actually doubled its revenue from about $500 billion to $1 trillion. Why? Well, I'd say they got rid of many of the loopholes that existed, and people in those higher tax brackets didn't cheat, or they didn't cheat as often. Now, a third important member of the cabinet was Herbert Hoover, the Secretary of Commerce. He was the only major progressive cabinet member, and, as progressives are wont to do, he sought to continue to reform government. By the way, keep this in mind when we discuss him and the Great Depression. Too often he's painted as being a laissez-faire adherent, and nothing could be further from the truth. Indeed, he promoted increased cooperation between government and business. Now, he made headlines in 1927 for his humanitarian role in dealing with the Great Mississippi Flood. However, he did make a huge mistake, one which probably came to haunt the GOP for decades. His broken promises to African Americans in the region cost him the election in 1932 and helped to cement the exodus of African American voters over to the Democratic Party. Now, Harding died in San Francisco in August 1923 while on a speech tour. It is fashionable today to talk about Harding and his administration as being corrupt, but he was well-loved at the time, and the scandals didn't break until after his death. Just to give you an idea of how well-loved he was, over 9 million people lined the railroad tracks as his casket made the journey from the West Coast back East. He lay in state in Washington, D.C., and then his remains were transported to Ohio for burial. Alright, so let's get to the scandals. I do think they are a bit overblown, but I also believe there can be no doubt that Harding was no saint. First, there does appear to be evidence that he had his fair share of extramarital affairs. Now, writing this in 2021 as I am, I don't think this is all that scandalous to us. I mean, we know many presidents had affairs, be it John Kennedy or Bill Clinton or FDR, so that's not all that big of a deal to me. However, the scandal that seems to get the most attention is the Teapot Dome scandal, so let's look at this one. Now, the Teapot Dome was an oil reserve in Wyoming that was set aside for the Navy to use in the case of a national emergency. Now, there had been an ongoing argument about whether or not it should be developed dating back to at least Wilson's administration, whose Interior Secretary, Franklin Lane, was an advocate of just such a plan. And when Harding came in, his Interior Secretary, Albert Fall, appropriately named perhaps, took up the argument. With the consent of the Secretary of the Navy, the decision was made to go ahead and develop the oil reserves. 
there was no competitive bidding as the leases were simply handed out to private companies. Fall was convicted of accepting bribes from the oil companies and he was the first member of a presidential cabinet to go to prison, although no one was convicted of paying the bribes. Now often this is talked about as the most scandalous event in American political history. But to me it seems like your standard operating procedure when it comes to government and corruption. I mean sure, it's corrupt, but I don't know, it's kind of your run-of-the-mill corruption. Okay, so moving on, let's look at the agenda of Harding, most of which was, of course, actually carried out by Coolidge. Now first, remember, conservatives believe the role of government is to make business more profitable, at least the so-called conservatives of this time period. Now myself, I would suggest the role of government is to get out of the way, and I would say that many people would probably call me a conservative, even though I'm an anarcho-capitalist, but whatever, I digress. One of the agenda items was to lower tax rates across the board. Now, if you remember, the income tax, when it was first implemented, was minuscule and only applied to the top 1% or so. Now, that quickly changed with the American entry into World War I, and the tax rates skyrocketed, which is something I think I mentioned in the episodes on World War I. Now, in the early 1920s, Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, um, he argued for lower taxes. And the idea was that by lowering taxes, people would have more money in their hands to spend. Sometimes folks who believe in big government will argue this was trickle-down economics and only benefited the wealthy. But a quick look at the tax brackets in 1920 shows that everyone was paying some taxes, as opposed to more recent years where half of the country pays no federal income tax. If you made $100 in 1920, you owed 4% tax on that income. At $4,000 a year, you jumped up to 8% and so on. Now just to follow the example, the tax cuts under Harding cut that rate for those making only $4,000 a year in half. If you made $14,000 a year, your taxes went from 14% to 8%. The, tox, the, the top tax rate sorry, was cut from 73% to 46%. Now, oddly, the government took in more revenue in those years after the tax cuts. Why? Well, the lower rate encouraged savings and investment instead of putting money into tax shelters. Furthermore, the gross national product grew at an annual rate of about 5%, and unemployment fell to under 4%. So one of the major myths that progressive historians tend to promulgate is that the 1920s were a time of unbridled laissez-faire capitalism. But I think they overstate their case. Certainly, you had lower taxes, and the United States was far less likely to get involved in foreign wars after its experience in World War I. But the United States was still involved in international affairs, as we will discuss in the next episode. Further, the income tax was not eliminated, nor was the central bank, so this wasn't a reset to the years prior to 1913. Historian Robert Higgs refers to this as the, quote, ratchet effect. Although government is scaled back, it never reaches the level it had been at prior to the increase. We saw this in the 1920s and even in the 1980s. While taxes were cut and some government agencies were cut, the reality is the U.S. federal government was larger in 1988 than in 1913 or even in 1932. It never goes back down to what it had once been. It's just lower than the emergency period levels. The very presence of the income tax and the central bank are two pieces of evidence that this was not, as my colleagues argue, a time of unfettered laissez-faire capitalism. Far from it. Furthermore, you had higher tariffs. Again, these are not exactly free market policies. In 1922, we got the Ford Nima Cumber Tariff. Businessmen were afraid of cheap goods coming in from Europe. Sound familiar? 
Tariff rates were increased from 27% under the Underwood tariff to 38.5%. Duties on foreign farm produce were increased. The impact of all of this is that it hurt Europe's post-World War I economic recovery and reduced Europe's ability to repay loans to the United States. But of course, it also hurt American consumers. The cost of the tariff, as with any tariff, wasn't paid by the company, but they were paid by the consumers. Now, the conventional wisdom, of course, is that conservatives believe the government's role should be limited and that it, the government, ought to stay out of the way of business. And certainly, less government regulation occurred than what we had seen in the progressive era. But, again, as you can see, it wasn't like there was none at all. Yes, Harding tended to appoint people to lead agencies who did not like the progressive uh, regulation. But this wasn't true in all instances. Case in point, Herbert Hoover. One instance, which is often brought out to prove this was an era of unregulated capitalism, is the fact that the Interstate Commerce Commission was dominated by men personally sympathetic to the managers of the railroads. That doesn't mean they got rid of the regulations. They were quite willing to use the federal apparatus and regulations. They just favored a different group, that's all. And with that in mind, the government actually helped facilitate monopolies and the consolidation of industries which is typical of the track record of progressive government, be it under a Republican or a Democrat. Antitrust laws were often ignored, circumvented, or simply not fully enforced by Attorney General Harry Dowdy. He later resigned after being investigated by the United States Senate for the illegal sale of pardons and liquor permits. Finally, the national debt was reduced by making government smaller. That debt had increased from $1.2 billion in 1914 to about $24 billion dollars in 1921, thanks to war-related spending. The Bureau of the Budget was actually created by Congress in 1921 to reduce the national debt. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon reduced it from about $26 billion, as I mentioned, um, down to $16 billion. A great achievement, no doubt. But as you can tell, they couldn't get it back down to pre-war levels. The ratchet effect is quite clear, as you can see. Okay, so that's all for today. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.